Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Work Alchemy podcast, Conversations About Impact, where entrepreneurs and leaders share how they have impact, the sweet moments, and the challenges. I'm your host, Ursula York. I help entrepreneurs grow successful businesses that make a difference in the world. Impact is more than mission, more than purpose, even more than your why. Impact is where your unique self meets the world and contributes to making it better for all of us. These stories are here to inspire and energize you so you can have your own unique impact. Today's guest on the podcast is Kelly Deals. Kelly is a writer and feminist marketing consultant. She helps feminist entrepreneurs sell without selling out. She's a published writer and social critic. She has five children and and is a rampant feminist. Every Sunday, she writes blazing epistles of righteousness. Her feminism and her work are about justice. Before we begin, this podcast conversation is between adults and contains a little adult language. So if you have little ones near you, you might want to use your headphones. So welcome to the podcast, Kelly. I'm really delighted to have you here. Thanks for having me, Ursula. I appreciate it. So... Um, you describe yourself as a, um, you help feminist entrepreneurs uh, sell without selling out. And what is, I mean, let's start with the feminist part first. What does feminism mean to you? Because it's gotten kind of a bad name in some circles. Um, what, what is that? How is that meaningful for you? So it- what it means to me, there's a definition that gets bandied around that that is quite general that says um, feminism at its most basic means that women are people. <laughs> and I appreciate that. Yes. And I think our basic culture in North America is fundamentally hostile to women. And um, I think we see that a lot in the last year or two that this has really come to the fore. Mm. And I think it's fundamentally, when I talk about feminism, it's about justice, it's about um, equality, it's about liberation, it's about human rights. And um, when I look at our mainstream culture, I find it, like I said, to be hostile to women, hostile to marginalized communities, um, hostile to people um, who are non-binary or trans. Um, Can you give some examples? Can you give some examples of that? Because sometimes I think people might be surprised by the strength of that statement. Right. So, I mean, look at what's happening right now as we're recording with um, a judge being nominated for the Supreme Court in the United States. And now it's emerging that there are accusations of sexual assault in his past. Mm -hmm. Um, And whether or not that goes ahead and he's confirmed or not, and the way that people are rallying to defend him, including women, are rallying to defend him. Yeah, always shocking. Um, right. So I, I actually don't find that shocking. <laughs> like, really? I find that totally predictable. Hmm. And so that's what I mean why our culture is fundamentally hostile to women. And the way that work in particular is set up is not friendly to the basics and realities of many people's lives. I would say most of the population's lives in that we have caregiving responsibilities to elders and to young people. Um, And so if the basics of life are not set up 
to accommodate the realities of most people's lives, and especially most women's lives, then it's a culture that's hostile to women. We can't flourish in that environment. So it's important to me as a feminist marketing consultant to think about the work that I do, the marketing campaigns that I set up, the marketing campaigns that I facilitate with clients, and make sure that they're not contributing to any kind of narrative that limits um, women, doesn't contribute to reinforcing norms or attitudes that are harmful to women and to marginalized communities. So that's what I mean when I say I'm a feminist marketing consultant. Right. I know you wrote an article, uh, I'm not sure when this was, but uh, about the price of women's time, mm. uh, where you said in that article, when governments and school boards cut dollars from their budgets, we step in with our uncompensated labor to fill the gap. So just referring yes. to what you just said about women have responsibilities outside of their work that uh, they haven't become... There isn't an institutional support for that. There isn't uh, government-level support. We're just expected to to fill in and, and carry on. Well, and it's not even just that there's no support or accommodation for the realities of our responsibilities. It's actually that society is organized on those invisible, uncompensated responsibilities. And if we stopped doing those things, our economies would grind to a halt. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like, the basics of our culture are built on our labor. Yeah. So, you know, and then we're not accommodated. Our actual labor isn't accommodated. So how does that affect us when we're setting up uh, a business and we're, we're uh, working on how to create space for ourselves in the marketplace and uh, be seen? And how does that play into all of that? I mean, it plays in, in in many ways. So one, it plays in just in the reality around the people I work with, how much time they have or don't have. Um, it r- comes up in our internal psychologies and our sort of emotional experiences that we're having, because often the way that women are conditioned in our society is exactly to have the opposite capabilities and habits um, that a successful entrepreneur requires. So a successful entrepreneur has to um, talk about themselves, has to be visible, has to be confident negotiating, has to take up space. And women fundamentally, most people who are socialized as girls and women are going to be socialized to be self-effacing, to not take up space, to not brag about themselves, to not talk about themselves, to not um, negotiate for what they want, not even to voice what they want. So a lot of the conditioning of girls and women um, is opposite to what we need to steward successful businesses. So there's a psychological piece. We almost have to deprogram ourselves of these limits that our culture has imposed on us. And then there's another thing that there's certain success models held out to women that says like, if you try to be successful in this way, it's possible. So you can be, if you are professionally pretty and thin and white um, and sexy, but not too sexy, and you're smart and a businesswoman, then that's okay. And you're going to be celebrated and revered and invited on all the stages. Um, But if you don't fall into that character, if you can't perform that character, those things are going to be much harder for you. There's not there's not a model for that, for mm-hmm. success without being first professionally pretty. Yeah. Well, there's that whole, I, mean, I know you used to talk a lot about the feminine lifestyle empowerment brand. Um, right. Yeah. That's Can, exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, that whole, um, and, and some people have made a great deal of money on uh, presenting this model and saying, if you follow this approach, um, I, I personally have been told, don't reinvent the wheel, just follow this approach, and you too can make millions. Um, and it, it's kind of a scary picture when you don't exactly fit the mold, because things don't unfold that way. Every business is different. Every business has particular uh, approaches that would perhaps be quite a bit better than that that model. Right. And that model is fundamentally exclusive because there's only a handful of people who can execute that model. Mm -hmm. So like a, a woman of color is not going to fit that model. A fat woman is not going to fit that woman model. A butch woman is not going to fit that model. So she's not going to be able to present herself in the world and market in that way because it wasn't built for her, wasn't built around who she actually is. And so what I see in the people that I work with, they come to me and they're frustrated because they've tried to execute that model. They've tried to show up in the world in that way and market that way. And it's so consuming and draining and frankly, emotionally debilitating that they can only perform it for a short period of time. And then they retreat and go silent and don't get visible. And so they end up marketing in fits and spurts, which is the exact opposite of what you need to grow a business, which is momentum across time, bit by bit by bit. Yeah. So that model, um, is actually going to get in the way of most people. Most women, that model is going to get in the way. That being said, some people can perform it and it was made for them and it will be, you know, a very, a very successful path. And in, as we perform those kinds of characters in the mainstream cultural arena, we contribute to the limitation of women. Because again, we hold out these norms saying that you can only get rights, resources, and riches if you are this thing. Yeah. Everyone else, it's, so it's fundamentally exclusive. It's, a, it's, a, it's an oppressive model. Well, I love that you say perform because I think that's so integral to that kind of approach is the, that you're presenting a certain persona. And right. Yeah. What, how authentic is that, do you think? For, is it authentic for anyone or is it? I mean, that's a good question. I don't know. But that there's a bigger question is how authentic can women be in a culture that we have to perform? Because this thing that I'm talking about isn't simply a character that people put on and perform online or in the marketplace. Like every woman has some sort of pressure on her to be thin, to be beautiful, not to leave the house without makeup. And how much of that we comply with is going to vary from person to person. But there is absolutely this expectation in our culture that we be this thing. So I don't know how authentic like the performance <laughs> of femininity ever is right. in a culture that requires it. There's no other option. Yeah. I, I think so much of marketing now requires some form of visibility, much more so than, and I'm really curious to hear your perspective, but from my point of view, much more so than used to be required. You used to be um, more geographically confined, and it was much more of a connection from personal relationship to personal relationship. And now visibility plays such a huge role, which kind of taps into women's concerns about how they're being seen, how they're being perceived, and all the things that you've talked about. 
So I actually, I'm actually a big fan of visibility and embodiment and showing up as we are. So for me as a fat woman, I really think it's important for me to show up with selfies and show myself online because I interrupt that narrative that says fat people are lazy and can't be successful. And I create space for other women like me, smart, accomplished um, entrepreneurs with social commitment who don't have to hold themselves back because they don't look like you know, a size two model, and they're not welcome in the marketplace. So I think it's actually, I, I appreciate visibility. Um, but I think that we have to use it to interrupt the things that are limiting us. And I, there's another thing I think that we forget is that we don't, we're not obliged to show up with our life and our intimacies and put them on display for people to consume. That's, that's not an obligation. And there is a different way to be visible. Um, we can be visible for our work. We can be visible for what we believe in. We can visible be visible for what we're trying to do and what we've accomplished. And that's one of sort of the formulas that I work with people around is like, what are you actually doing? What are you good at? What are you believing in? And can we put those together mm-hmm. as your social media strategy, for example? Yeah. Can we put those on display? rather than you standing in front of the Eiffel Tower in a flowing maxi dress showing us how luxurious your lifestyle is. <laughs> yeah, I uh, one of my clients is someone who's very visible on social media, and yet she is really upfront about saying there are aspects of my life that are not on social media, will never be right. on social media, and they are private to me. And yet, you know, she's perceived as a very open, and, and she is a very open kind of person, but it's it's that what parts of your life do you choose to share on within the context of your business and what parts remain private? It doesn't mean that you're not being authentic. It's preserving your privacy. And I think that's actually really important for women. Um, a friend of mine, Carmen Spaniola, she and I are reading Caliban and the Witch in a, a book club that we've formed. And one of the things the author in this book says is that women became the commons so, you know, there used to be the system where we had land in common and we grazed our livestock and we build livelihoods on the commons. We held them in common. Mm-hmm. And when those things got encircled, women became the commons. So women's labor, mm-hmm. women's lives belonged to all. Um, and that's kind of what we're talking about, about uncompensated labor and um, our economies would grind to a halt without our caregiving and uncompensated labor. But this I, this notion that we are required to display our lives, our most innermost thoughts, and often our traumas in order to be rewarded with attention and livelihood, I I think we need to interrupt that. Yes, absolutely. Be brave. Tell your story. Take up space. Create space for those coming up after you and for um, people who aren't conventionally heard in our cultural arena. But don't feel like you have to market your trauma and that's the only way that you deserve attention. Mm. You know, like find your happy place with that. So I, I feel really uncomfortable and, and concerned with how much we're required to share online with strangers, which often then gets used as ammunition against us. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really glad to hear you say that. I think that is so important that it, it really speaks to us each defining what is what we want to share rather than feeling we have to conform to some all revealing kind of approach to, uh, to our, our businesses and our marketing. 
Well, and especially again, if we come back to the notion that this culture is fundamentally hostile to women, right? Like that, that is a dangerous thing to do. And there's a reason um, privacy is important. It's an important safety. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one, one of the things I know you've written about as well is this whole issue of um, pricing and affordability. And, you know, there's a model of, of doing work on a premium level that charges quite a bit. And yet that makes your services no longer accessible to um, certain people. And it, it, it kind of ties in with the economics of, of running a business. I, what, can you talk a little bit about that and your, your thoughts around that? Right. So I don't have hard and fast rules around this because everybody has a different business model. But if, for example, you can only work with 10 people across the year, you have a high intensity, high touch business, you work with people across time in a really hands on one on one way consulting or what have you, if you can only take on 12 clients or 10 clients per year, then you actually need to price in a premium way. Otherwise, you're not going to make a living and you're going to starve. So in that kind of model, like you have to be really honest about what's required in order for you to have a livelihood um, and charge accordingly, you know, and if your business is about having social impact, you also have to admit to yourself that you've just priced yourself out of the market for a good number of the people that you most care about and um, want to have an impact with. So then I think you need to have an accessibility affordability strategy. Um, some of the, some things that are an affordability accessibility strategy is giving away free content, putting up DIY videos, giving away a lot of material so people can put your practices into place in a DIY kind of way. Or um, for every three full paying clients you have, you take on a fourth pro bono um, and you build that into your pricing. So there's a, there's a lot of different ways that you can be creative about what an affordability accessibility strategy is, or maybe you have a group program that you offer a certain number of scholarship spots in available to the people in communities that you most want to work with and support, you know, in growing and blossoming. There's a lot of different ways to think about that, but you also, so what I see often is the people I work with are super socially committed and what they do is their affordability accessibility strategy is that they are going to suffer and their business is not going to profit. <laughs> and so they'll do a lot of stuff that are priced way under what is necessary for the company to thrive and for them to have a salary mm -hmm. because of their social commitment. So I'm just asking us to navigate both things at the same time and really admit to ourselves what we need to thrive, what our salaries need to be, um, what our overhead is, and make sure those are covered, you know, and also find a way to be accessible and affordable. Some people who have low priced um, products that sell uh, huge numbers probably don't need to worry so much about what the affordability accessibility strategy is because the thing is inherently affordable. Um, but people who work with only a handful of people that you have to admit to yourself is not, not affordable. And then you have to be deliberate about what the strategy is. If there are communities you want to reach who are not going to be able to afford those prices. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and there's a limit too to how much impact you can have when income is a constant issue because it drains energy. It saps you. It uh, limits. There are some things that simply require money in order to have impact in that particular way. So um, well, and what happens to I see is people end up leaving their fields yeah. because they need to go get jobs because they're not making enough money. Mm -hmm. So now that's like a brain drain. We've lost that resource and they can't have the impact they were hoping to have. So 
in order to be sustainable, we have to have thriving livelihoods. I'm not saying we have to drive Bentleys. I'm saying we have to, you know, be able to live comfortably and well and have our needs taken care of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I so agree. I, I uh, would like to kind of explore the impact that you have with your work and how you see it and how you've heard from your clients as ways that you're having impact in a, in a unique way. So I think of impact like drip by drip in a bucket hmm. and across time, the bucket gets full. So I look at my work as a body of work that grows across time and the impact grows across time. Um, And what that does is kind of keep me humble about how much impact I'm really having in any given moment. There is no blog post I'm going to write that's going to change the world. There's no client session I'm going to have that's going to change their life, right? That's not going to happen in one giant dramatic way. But steadily across time, you know, water drip by drip, on the rocks changes the shape of the rock. And I hope that's what I'm doing in our culture, just drip by drip and person by person and company by company that I work with. So that's what I think about impact. I think it's something that happens. Um, it, it, it's iteration and it's cross time and it's, you know, what it all means together. Um, what do I hear from my clients? I mean, I, I hear lots of things. Um, <laughs> people, I was at a conference this summer that really blew my mind. People came up to me and told me how much my work on the female lifestyle empowerment brand meant to them and how it set them free because they realized they were performing this thing and it was actually um, draining energy away from doing the work that they wanted to do and, and getting in the way of them marketing. And they were hiding from their own marketing because they couldn't perform this thing. And so it kind of set them free in that way to just do their work and gave them some enthusiasm around marketing because now they could market who they are and what their work was sort of free of that requirement to perform a character. So, I mean, that's super rewarding for me, but I think what I see with my clients who I work with for long periods of time, you know, is that slow growth over time. And some of these things start becoming second nature and habit and, some of the insecurities that we initially had to get through around visibility, around being brave and really doing your work, they just become habits. So it is just, it's a slow build. I think that's, I'm not looking for dramatic overnight stuff. I'm looking for slow, steady, sustainable um, impact. Yeah. That's a really uh, um, reasonable way of looking at it. I mean, I think occasionally somebody has impact in a sudden and and uh, dramatic way, but that's rare. So is there a way that your business and the your the focus of what you do is clearly values based? I mean, you you focus on love and justice and what are what are the things that influence your business on a day to day? How does how do those values influence your business day to day in the way that you run it? So, I mean, if we come back to my feminist principles, my feminist values, um, they do impact my day to day business practices. In that, even when I'm choosing an app, I have a selection matrix, a little spreadsheet where I, you know, compare. I look for the features I want, and you know, which app has the features I want. Um, but then I look at, I go on LinkedIn and I look at their teams and I count up, let's say there's 60 team members on this software I'm considering. And then I count it up and I find that 98% of those team members are white, you know, and there's just no excuse for that. Mm. Um, so that is not some, that's not a, a 
an app that I necessarily want to, um, that's not a company I want to invest in or support. So I look for, let's say I'm evaluating four companies who are going to be either vendors or an app. I look for my feminist principles. Are there women in executive leadership positions? Are there people of color in executive leadership positions? Is the team substantially diverse? Do they have any public commitments to diversity or progressive social causes? Do they sponsor any kinds of events or community um programs that I can get behind, you know, and sometimes the answer is no. And I have to choose, choose the least evil actor. And I still find that to be a feminist choice is to choose the least (laughs) evil actor. Um, but sometimes I can find, you know, a feminist organization that deserves my money and deserves to be my vendor choice. So that's part of how my values inform my business. I love the degree of rigor that you're applying to even a seemingly simple purpose, but that's really at the heart of running things based on your values, isn't it? Of of really applying it in every case, not on a selected basis when it's convenient. Well, and I think when it comes to the feminist marketplace too, there's a lot of people and a lot of companies using really sexy, attractive, revolutionary feminist language who don't actually have the principles or the practices that line up with it. It's just window dressing. So I'm thinking of H&M about two years ago had this amazing um, commercial campaign, totally intersectional. There was lots of body diversity, you know, and when I saw the commercials, I was like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. I'm so in, you know, and then there were the next couple of days, all these essays coming out that H&M has appalling labor practices yeah. or terrible um, practices around maternity leave and, you know, has a terrible vendor chain that's totally exploitative. And so when you look at that, it's like, well, that's gorgeous. Yes, feminist campaign. And those are not feminist business practices. And so when I think about feminist marketing, I actually, before we design campaigns that are feminist and good for women, like what are what are our actual business practices underneath the hood? Are mm. they as feminist as they can be? Or are we just trying to capitalize on feminism being popular at this moment in time? Right. Well, that really brings up this whole question about manipulative marketing. And I know for many of the clients that I've worked with, they many people... They say they hate marketing, but I think what they really hate is the underlying manipulative nature and not, not necessarily mm. underlying. It's sometimes quite overt. And, um, that is something that I think many people are trying to work with and work around or find other ways to talk to people about their products and services that doesn't require manipulation. But it seems like the online world is, uh, has quite a lot of that going on it's not accidental either. Like that's how it's designed. If you look at sort of the people who designed the online marketing systems, they're overwhelmingly going to be white middle-class men who were trying to think of how to get ahead and weren't thinking about the impact that these methods would have Hmm. on their community first, but also disproportionately on marginalized people. So like, it, the the bias and the manipulation is baked into the system, baked into these formulas. Um, and so, yeah, we should be skeptical right. of them. And there are different ways to do it. I mean, it's the most basic thing. So like online, we're all taught that in order to get people to sign up to our email list, we must give them some sort of 
like free, free gift. kind of like a trick. Like we've got to bait them into joining. It's called an opt-in or a lead magnet. And like, I think there's ways to do opt-ins and lead magnets that are brilliant and generous and generative and not a bait and switch. Um, but you actually don't have to have them. You can get people to sign up without giving them a cookie or baiting <laughs> them. I have never had an opt-in and my list grows steadily every year. Yeah. And I mean, your, your writing is, is uh, I think what draws a lot of people uh, to you that they, I mean, you're a powerful writer and you're talking about things that affect people every day in their businesses and their lives. So that's, yeah, a, and, yeah go ahead. Oh, well, I, just, I have like so much profound sympathy for people who hate marketing and it is, honestly, I say it's not that you're, you have some sort of block against success, which is one of the things that we get told that we're sabotaging yeah. ourselves, right? Right. I think it's actually that you have a sense of justice and you're fundamentally not comfortable with these methods. And so I think don't use them. Be super creative and find something else to use instead. And be really transparent about what you're doing. So when you're getting someone to sign up for an email list so that you don't feel like a jerk about it and you're he then hesitant to send people any material, be upfront about what's going to happen. So I say, you know, every Sunday you're going to get a love letter and from time to time I'm going to try to sell you my shit. And people sign up. And so I don't feel, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have swore. I should have asked you about that. So sorry. <laughs> totally uh, fine. We just put a little okay. disclaimer up front and then people can... Just roll with it. <laughs> so what I'm trying to say is then I personally don't feel any hesitation about sending out those mailers because there's been informed consent from the jump. So I don't feel like a smarmy marketer because I was totally transparent about what's going to happen and people's expectations have been set. And also then their defenses are slightly up. They know what's coming. They know I'm going to try to sell stuff and they have that expectation. Mm -hmm. So they don't kind of get lured into something um, and then realize like, oh, well, wow, that was a sales funnel. I meant to read an email and now I just spent $2,000. Right. So I think it's just important to be really transparent and ask for really explicit consent. And then you don't feel like a jerk when you're marketing because you let everyone know up front that you're going to be marketing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that upfront transparency that it, you enter into an adult relationship with someone. Right. Rather, rather than trying to find some roundabout or indirect way of... of um, well, misleading them, frankly, in some in some ways, but right. yeah, and it's actually quite um, profoundly like uh, freeing in a sense because now you are free to send things. You don't have to get yourself into like this spiral of am I sending too much? Am I not sending enough? You set the expectations up front, and then you're kind of in a contract and a covenant with people, and it's your obligation to hold up your end of it. Do what you say you said you were going to do. Send that email every week. Mm -hmm. Right, exactly. Well, um, Kelly, Ed, I'm really interested in, to, in diving in a little bit into your business and how things work for you. How, how have things evolved for you over time in terms of what you're focusing on versus what, I mean, at the beginning of every business, you are doing everything. And now that you've been at this for a while, how are you finding that you're shifting as a leader in your business uh, on, in terms of what you focus on? Um, I think I've slowed down significantly. So I think that's one of the things when I 
realize that sort of uncontrolled growth starts driving you. Like there's this narrative in our culture that you must grow as fast as possible, grow as much as possible. But what happens when that starts happening is you are no longer in the driver's seat. It's driving you. It's determining your time. And it doesn't allow you to attend carefully to each important decision and sort of see around the corner uh, to the impact that that will have on other people, especially the marginalized communities you most care about. And so I've definitely slowed down and been more intentional and deliberate about what I do and what the possible harm could be if I do it badly or if I don't have the skills to do it um, and, and taking that more seriously as a leader. Yeah, that's really, uh, it, it really helps to then be able to step back and look at what exactly is going to happen if this is rolled out in a particular way and uh, be able to have leadership in that regard rather than just running on the treadmill. Right. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, that's, that's definitely a, a lesson I've learned and has changed for me significantly. Well, the, in terms of, of your business and the writing that you do, I mean, you're dealing with controversial topics often. You're quite clear about your point of view. You're not afraid to express your opinion. And there's been some controversy around your brand as well. So how does your relationship with your impact help you to get past those situations, get past the naysayers? Well, I, I, I want to be really sort of refined about the naysayers first. So there are people who critique you who are simply your ideological opponents who or who don't want to see people like you succeed or take up space. So those people I don't pay any mind. You know, like a men's rights activist who comes at me because I'm a feminist and like try like that that is irrelevant to me. It might really irritate me, but it doesn't um, interfere with my work or slow me down in any way. Um, but if someone came to me with critique, and this has happened, people came to me with critique who are my allies, who are the people I most care about their opinion, and they're telling me I do something wrong. That's not a naysayer. That's important for me to slow down and listen to. So like not all critique has to be disregarded. Mm -hmm. I actually think it's really important not like I, I really dislike this like haters gonna hate and yeah. don't listen to people who criticize you. I actually think we should listen to people who criticize us, but we need to do it with some sort of discernment. Like, are they trying to criticize us because they want to silence everyone who looks like us? Well, that's, you know, pay that no mind. But are they trying to criticize us because they don't think we're having the impact that we intend to have, or we're doing harm in ways that we're not seeing? That needs to be listened to. And sometimes that needs to be listened to and really like percolated and integrated across time. That's not something necessarily that you get in one epiphany. Mm -hmm. That's something that deepens into you. So I actually think it's really important to listen to critique and not perform it um, and not push it off or reject it. I really like what you said about discernment. And um, I often say that feedback of whatever kind from clients or people in your, your circle of connection is it's a gift because you're actually hearing from people in a real way about how your work is affecting them. And then you can apply your discernment to that as to whether you want to make adjustments to what you're doing in order to avoid that in the future or 
present things in a different way or continue along the path, but it's your decision ultimately then. Yes. You know, and it's, it's your responsibility too. So I, I think sometimes we call ourselves leaders or we want to be leaders, but what we want is like the glamour and prestige that comes with leadership right. rather than the actual responsibilities that come with leadership. And I, like, I really think that's something that I have been um, integrating in like in a really powerful way over the last year. Well, is, is there a way that you make sure that you take care of yourself through all of this, it, through all the work that you're doing, the travel and um, the, is there a way that you make sure that you're looking after yourself every day as well? I as would say in the past, the past, the answer was no. I just, <laughs> you know, was running as fast as I could, which is actually a terrible um, process because it's setting you up for burnout. Um, but now... Um, so for example, I went to a conference in August and it was actually like a really emotionally trying time in my life. We'd recently lost a family member to some brutal violence. Um, there was a relationship falling apart in my family. Like it was a really hard time for me. And I went to this conference. Um, I really had to be cajoled and almost coerced into it by some friends, family and community members to go, but it was totally the right decision. Um, but coming back, I knew because I had learned this from Lisa Briggs a year or two ago that I should schedule uh, a medicine day, like schedule a day to recover from the things that you were doing. And she had specifically told me, like when you're speaking, for example, you already build into your schedule that, you know, there's a day of travel, you know, that you're performing for a day, you know, there's another day of travel coming back and you build that into your schedule and you don't take other appointments. Right. But what you also have to do is think about how much does it take for you to recover from those things and build that in and then actually price the whole thing that you're charging to be there to include those days that you need to recover. So I'm being really deliberate about when I'm doing things that interrupt my normal routines or patterns, or I know that are going to be profoundly draining, exhausting, or that I'm going to need to recover from, like I build in those recovery days afterwards. So that's one of the ways I'm trying to take care of myself. The other thing is I protect writing time. I don't usually take appointments on Mondays. I often don't take appointments on Thursdays um, because those are my days that I'm thinking and being creative and writing. Um, so I build in time and I, I protect it because it's very easy not, it, it's really easy to wait to give away time that's really important that fuels the work that you do. So those are the ways I'm trying to take care of myself is to protect certain blocks of time to be creative um, and think about what I'm trying to do and be developmental. And I, I try to build in time off, even if it's in the middle of the week, to recover from things that I find to be quite draining. I think both those things are so important of building in rejuvenation recovery time because yeah. we tend to just do the thing and then you're on to the next without barely a pause. And especially when you're traveling, it can be particularly draining and, and doing something like speaking where you're, a lot of energy is going, moving outward and also protecting writing time. It's, it's really easy to say, well, I'm just sitting at my desk writing so I can fit in an appointment here or there. And it's, it really does disrupt the flow and uh, you don't have the same kind of experience or uh, way of, of being able to communicate when you're constantly allowing that time to be disturbed. Right. That's yeah. so very true. 
Well, Kelly, we uh, I always now wrap up these interviews with a rapid round of three questions. So are you ready for you ready for those? I'm ready. Let's do it. <laughs> okay. So the first question is, what's the biggest thing you've learned about having impact? The biggest thing is to think of your body of work across time and know that any one thing you do is not the sum of everything. <laughs> and so it takes a bit of pressure off you. Not everything has to be perfect. It all adds up to your body of work across time. Yeah, I like that. Then the second question is, what is the one thing you've consistently done that's contributed to your success and your impact the most? Um, writing, definitely. So I think find the way that you express yourself and that you like doing and you want to grow and do that thing. So if it's talking one-on-one -on -one to people, if it's video, if it's writing, like find your groove and then like really stay there. Don't even worry too much about trying to be well-rounded and having adding other communication modes to your roster. Like whatever you're good at, do that like over and over and as much as you can. Yeah. Well, and all those things benefit so much from practice and doing right. a lot of it and writing, especially, I know for myself, that's certainly been true. Well, the, the last rapid round question is what's one piece of advice or an insight that you'd want to share with somebody who's thinking, I want to, I want to be a change maker. I want to have impact. What would you say to them? I'd say be brave and speak up and keep speaking up. Um, and even when you're being critiqued, keep speaking up. Like don't let your work be dependent on being popular or being liked because you're not going to be popular and liked all the time. So just stay the course and sort of divorce yourself from the popularity metrics and whether or not people are liking and loving you up. If you do it only because it's likable, you're not ever really going to be committed to it. So just keep coming back to like, what are you committed to? What are you going to do even if it ruffles feathers and do that thing? Yeah, that's great. Well, Kelly, thank you so much for being here, for talking about um, how you see impact, how it's, you see it growing across time, drip by drip, I think you said, and mm -hmm. um, using visibility to interrupt things that, that aren't serving us. I found that really powerful when you talked about that. So thank you for, for joining us today and, uh, and being willing to talk about all these things. Well, thank you, Ursula, for having me. And thank you, everyone, for listening and offering me your time and attention. It's valuable, and I appreciate it. So thanks for being here with us. Yeah, absolutely. Well, if, if people want to get in touch with you, Kelly, what's the best way for them to reach you? The best way would be to go to my website, kellydeals.com. It's D-I-E-L-S.com. The worst way is to email me. I avoid my <laughs> inbox like I owe it money. Um, <laughs> but, I mean... I do check it from time to time. So you can email me at info at kellydeals.com. And I think the place that I'm most energized on in terms of social media right now is probably Instagram. So perhaps we could connect on Instagram. That might be the most fun place to be. Great. All right. Well, thanks again, Kelly. I really appreciate the work you're doing in the world. So thank you. Thank you, Ursula. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Join us for more episodes, subscribe to the Work Alchemy podcast on iTunes or Stitcher Radio so you'll know as soon as new episodes are available. 
You can even help spread the word. Leave a review if you like what you've heard. Thanks for listening. Until next time, for ongoing support so you can have your own impact, join our community of entrepreneurs like you by liking the Work Alchemy Facebook page.